This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And pitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Eric Shaw Quinn, have I told you about the lovely Facebook messages we have been receiving from our party people? No. I, I believe I did, but this scripted intro just belly flopped. I'm just kidding. We didn't actually script this, but I did. I called you and I said, we got these great messages on, on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. We got one from a gentleman named Joe O'Brien, and he said that he listens to the podcast with friends of his and that they have a drinking game. Oh, I and it's every love time. That. Every absolutely. time I say absolutely, they take a drink. So absolutely, 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 absolutely. They're all oh passed my out now. God, they're yeah. unconscious on the floor. Yeah, How many totally. was that? That was a whole bottle. Yeah, totally. Um, Eric Shaw Quinn, do we want to talk about an exciting thing that happened for you this week? I didn't ask you uh, oh when we before we recorded this. My God, like it's like guess what I'm thinking with Christopher Rice. <laughs> I've had, I ate that bag of M&M's you bought me and I've got a lot of sugar and I got to get it all in before I crash. That and the uh, the raspberry Easter eggs, the raspberry cream mm, Easter eggs. Those were good. Thank you, sir. Truff, raspberry truffles are Christopher's favorite and I found Easter eggs from Russell Stover that were raspberry truffles. He was um, quite excited, but he's also like vibrating into a different dimension. I think raspberry so it may just whip. be maybe just be us party people. It may be you and me. Um, raspberry show, whip. whip, 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 whip it good. Um, <laughs> so I'm guessing good. that the thing that I'm supposed to guess is that I got my first vaccine jab this week. Yay! Yay! His Very first heavy. Pfizer. It's a it's a children's story My about this guy Pfizer. in his sixties getting vaccinated for coronavirus. Yeah, it's really yeah. Children just love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> they just can't get enough of the old Needles guy sitting in a car for an hour and a half for three seconds getting a shot in his arm. And I will I, say, I got the yeah. best vaccination technician, uh, Arion. Mm. Was the but best we were not vac- allowed. We were not allowed to take a picture that included him. He said he w- that the texts are not allowed to be pictured. I don't know what that's about. If well, it's a I law think that's you know good for them. Like I think they yeah. should be safe. So yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was the um, it was. Uh, let's turn this thing this way so I can see everybody. No, that didn't help at all. Um, <laughs> now I'm outside. I'm no longer in the frame at all. We're we're. I'm playing with the FaceTime we, as we record remotely. We record. We use FaceTime so we can see yeah. each other. And I'm can't quite manage to. 
Like there's yeah. the big blank screen that Brandon's not on, and mine is down there. No, there was a Brandon. chair. There was a chair in front of Brandon's screen. We're over the FaceTime. We no longer have FaceTime decorum. We've recorded more episodes of the show remotely than we have in our lovely studio, which we have not been able to get back into. But soon, hopefully, soon. Maybe next time. But with the vaccines beginning to start, because you're you'll be able to soon because yes. they're opening it up next month um, mm-hmm. to everybody. Although I guess it's really. All of this is past tense because by the time people are listening to this, we'll be all, we will probably all be totally vaccinated and Here's um, hoping. you know going to uh, Aruba for a gay no, dance party. Not Aruba <laughs> and no gay dance parties. I don't attend gay dance parties. Well, at the There's very least, lunch dancing. at our favorite re- neighborhood there restaurants. You go. Absolutely, lunch, 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 lunch. But it was very exciting, and I was saying to you as we were pulling into the vaccination center, oh my God, like, as hopeful as it was, there was an aspect of it that was sort of apocalyptic because it's set up to accommodate so many people, and what's the only limitation was the supply. It wasn't like they couldn't handle right. all these lanes. They took over the second floor of the Beverly Center parking lot here in Los Angeles, which if you don't know it, watch the classic movie Volcano, and it will introduce you to the Beverly Center area. Which is our Angeles. neighborhood mall. <laughs> right. It's hideous. It looks like it's a monolith. It's so gross. But the joke when know. I first moved here was that um, they called the uh, the Pacific Design Center, which you can also look up, the Great Blue Whale. And they call the Beverly Center the box that it came in. I do. <laughs> That's really funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, it really is sort of like you could kind of see like, yeah, that that's about right. So it's this big, yeah, the, the parking garage is actually part of the mall itself. It's one structure mm-hmm. that includes the parking garage. So it's got like seven floors of parking garage. And then on top of it is the mall. And so yeah. they've devoted one whole floor because our neighborhood hospital, Cedar sinai is right across the street. So right. they, they're staffing it and they've devoted a whole floor of the parking garage to giving out the vaccine. And I was giving props to Arion who gave me my stick. And if Christopher hadn't witnessed it, cause I won't look while they're giving me a shot. I just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not have known. I even got a shot. It was so easy and mm-hmm. so painless, no symptoms. My arm wasn't really sore. Like mm-hmm. my old man joke was um, I got my shot in my right, in my right arm. But the, during that day, my left arm hurt. My left shoulder hurt worse mm-hmm. because it's old. Um, That's hysterical. Ha ha. That's a great joke. Christopher actually laughed the first time I told him that joke, but he's sick of it now. Yeah, I kind of am, but I always laugh the first time. No, um, because it's always funny the first time. Courtesy laugh. Eric Shaw Quinn, always funny the first time. Hashtag courtesy Um, laugh. Hashtag courtesy laugh. Yeah, it was um, it was an interesting experience. I know that my aunt was concerned. I was talking to her because she thought there were maybe vaccination centers that kept you for observation in case you had a reaction, and maybe there were others that didn't. I know that we it was structured in such a way we never got out of our cars, but you parked and registered, and then you pulled forward into a spot where you got your vaccination, and then you stayed in that spot for, I guess, 15 minutes. So 15, they could make 20 sure minutes had, long in there so that yeah. you didn't pass out or whatever. And we just ran our mouths and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. played games on our phones and stuff, checked our social yeah. media and texted people that we cared about and those kinds of things. But, yeah, it was very – it was kind of in and out, and there were – they said they could do something like 3,000 a day. 4,000 a day. 4,000 a day. And they had 300 that day. Yeah. So you can imagine how 
what a wasteland it really was. There were all of these mm-hmm. snake lines set up so that you could queue up to get your shots. Anyway. And he said the most they had ever done in a day was a thousand. And when, what we mean when we say this is that's how many shots they had to give out. Their capacity for what yeah, they, they could, could do more than that. He said that. they hadn't even brought in the full staff that they'd hired to run the place because they'd never had enough vaccine mm. to warrant it. So here's hoping that by the time this comes out, the vaccine is just pouring in. And I mm-hmm. will say my day of vaccination was in its moment. It was 3.4 million vaccines were given out that day, which was at that moment the most that they had ever given in a single day. So here's hoping that they're beating that by the time you hear this voice and that you all have a vaccine. And if you have any hesitancy about it, I got to tell you, didn't feel it. And there was never any aftermath. So Pfizer, Pfizer, right? That's for my Pfizer. But, you know, I don't know that it's true. Not true for all of them. Like um, other people we know got the Moderna and we're like, yeah, it was fine. Nobody that I, I've, I've talked to people that I actually know who have had their second shot of Pfizer and everybody says if it's going to really get you with some side effects, it's usually the second shot. They were both older people. They did not have any side effects yeah. to the second Pfizer. No. So fingers no, crossed. I haven't heard any any reactions about that, too. So my experience so far is so good that I'll keep you posted. Like if there's something to complain about, God knows I will. Anyway, so... This week is True Crime TV Club, right? We're back. We are back oh, thank to God. True Crime TV Club. So I didn't watch Club. that show just because I wanted to. Yeah, well, it was your suggestion, and I actually quite enjoyed it. Was going to give you props for it, but I'm not sure if you did. We'll find no, out. No, it at the really, end. we really lucked into it. Like I looked, we were trying to decide what, um, what you know, we try and be topical about the shows we pick, like you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving or Halloween Seasonal. or Mother's Day yes. or whatever. Seasonal. Seasonal. Yes. Be topical to when the show is first going to air so that, you know, we're talking about things that happened on a similar day. So I looked on uh, Google about what had happened on today's date. And today is the anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Mm-hmm. April 18th, 1906. Yes. And so this is the first time we are actually doing something that is available, we think, only on YouTube. It's not pirated. It is a program on the Real Crime YouTube channel. It's called Real Crime. The name of the program is Was Herbert, Herbert excuse me, Mullen, M-U-L-L-I-N, <laughs> Born to Kill. That's actually the name of it. It's a 44-minute documentary on YouTube. And... As always, you are not remotely required to watch it beforehand. We're going to serve it up in enough steaming detail. And you'll find out why that's a significant choice as we talk about the show here on the anniversary of the great San Francisco earthquake. And it's a doozy. It is. And it was, I thought, a pretty good show. I'm sorry. I thought we got our one minute warning when I was looking away. That's why I suddenly fell silent. I did. Okay, good. I thought it was a good show too, but I didn't know. I I will say this. I was more impressed with the commentators than I've ever been with any of these shows. I thought the stuff that the commentators said to us about the psychology involved, and we'll get into all of it shortly, was the most insightful and interesting they, they shined a light on a very nuanced point that doesn't obvi- doesn't often get spotlit in specials like these. So anyway, blah, 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 blah. Let's get into it, shall we, since we don't have a break, as I <laughs> thought we did. It's not time for the break. Uh, four minutes. Okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the whole special in four minutes. No, of course not. We've we should have talked about vaccines some more, because yeah. that's what everybody's dying to hear about that happened last month. 
our usual pivot from the apocalyptic pandemic to true crime, which we always do here on this podcast. Just to cheer um, ourselves up. Santa Cruz, California. Do you know where Santa Cruz, California is, Eric Shaw? It's in the Lost Boys. It is. It is Santa Carla when in the you're Lost strange, Boys. People yes. Will, yes, absolutely. It's the Lost Boys. Do you want to know another trivia tidbit about Santa Cruz and yes, the Lost Boys? Yes, I do. By sheer coincidence, my mother, who was then an emerging author named Anne Rice, who I think had published one vampire novel, maybe two. She and had I, sort of emerged. She was crowned. And, <laughs> and my father. <laughs> she was a crowning author. A crowning author. Yes, indeed. Ready. Soon would be ready for her crown as the vampire queen. We went on a vacation in Santa Cruz as they were filming The Lost Boys. Pure coincidence. Wow. Wow. And it was annoying to me because what it meant was there's a boardwalk in Santa Cruz, California. It's sort of the tourist destination there. And they closed it early because they were shooting. It's a vampire movie, mostly at night. And I think they were shoot. They shot some concert scenes and whatever, but they also shot the opening. And I think we saw the helicopter flying in over the water late at night. We were staying at a place called the Dream Inn, which was sort of on the, the bend of the coast, just south of the boardwalk. And I saw that helicopter fly in and shoot that opening you know, with the music pumping and the titles and whatever. Anyway, very exciting. Once again, about me, as everything on the show is. The Dream Inn? The Dream Inn. Yeah. Dream I-N-N. Billy Newton directed a porn film named Call- The Dream Inn. Was, oh, I thought it was Dream Men. Well, I think it was, I think it was a pun. Dream it, dream it. <laughs> okay, wow. And this was, I think, well, when were they shooting this? This was, Billy was still alive when this happened. This was like yeah. 1986 or 87. He was alive when he directed it. Yeah, wow. It was 89 when he directed it, so. I wonder um, if it's got, I wonder if it's got a connection to the, the Dream Inn in Santa Cruz know. is still there. It's still actually there. I checked on the internet the other day. Anyway. None of this is about the case that we're going to talk about today. No, once again, we're still not talking about what we said we were going to talk to. So maybe we'll start in a minute. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. All right, let us begin. So we're in Santa Clara. What year is it? No, we're in Santa Cruz, California. Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz, Cruz, sorry. Yes, we have have all snacked on sugary things except for Eric. So Eric feels like he's the voice of reason on today's podcast. (laughs) I'm all over the place. Which shows you really how far we're gone. If I'm the voice of reason, you've made a serious uh, mistake, a judgment, in, an error in judgment somewhere along the way. And the, Check the, the great, map. 
but the great news is I actually took notes this week, unlike our last recording session when my notes were crap and we got thrown off. Well, they were different than usual, and it threw us off a little bit. We were a little baffled by where we were. We needed okay. a timeline. And now we're going to Santa Cruz, California. It is January 1973. A sheriff's detective named Terry Medina is called to a crime scene that he says he will never forget. He comes across a woodland cabin in the Santa Cruz Mountains, oh, which is close brutal. to a tourist destination they call the Mystery Spot. And if you're at all familiar with California, there are places like the Mystery Spot all over. There's something called the Integratron out in the high desert. There's something in Arizona and Sedona. They think there are vortexes. This is a spot Because it where really people... is that wacky in California. It's part of the reason yeah. we fit in here, but it can occasionally be a little out there. And so what people believe about the mystery spot is that gravity does not exist there as it does in other places, and they probably believe this because of drugs. But they don't say that succinctly in the special itself. Yes. Gravity doesn't exist there the way it does elsewhere, but peyote does. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's close to Christmas time. It's drizzly, rainy, and wet, which it often is in this part of the world. We're in Northern California, just south of San Francisco. The cabin, it turns out, is home to 30-year-old Kathy Francis and her family. She lives there with her two young sons, and Sheriff's Detective Terry Medina finds them all inside. They have been murdered. The Christmas tree has been knocked down. The decorations are broken, and on the floor there are signs of a violent struggle everywhere, indicating that Kathy put up one hell of a fight. The boys had been playing Chinese checkers in their bunk, the killer shot and then stabbed them both with a hunting knife. And in a detail I will never be able to get out of my head, he pulled one of them closer to him by the child's foot before stabbing him. Yeah. And the and the detective was right. It was that seems like a pretty unforgettable mm -hmm. crime scene. The children, like it's horrible enough that there's a murder, but when it to, to murder children, I mean these were young children. Young children, and I will say. I don't know if this is a function of it being something we were watching on YouTube. This was not amateurishly produced. It wasn't like somebody threw it together in 15 minutes. No. More crime scene photos than I am used to seeing in specials like these actual black and white crime scene It was scene very photos. well put together. It was yeah. very informational, but it was also hard to look at. Uh, this is, it turns out, not the first terrifying murder that's happened in Santa Cruz during this time period. Recently, a Catholic priest was stabbed in the confessional. Uh, there have been other victims, which they summarize very briefly. We're going to meet each one in turn, old people, young women. There's basically a sense at this time that nobody in Santa Cruz is safe, that there is a killer out there and there doesn't appear to be any apparent logic connecting the individual murders. We're and there, to even a, the style of the, even the MO, even the, the style yeah. of the killing was, yeah, it was all over the place. It was just this, and it's kind of a small town, and in 1973... It would have been a pretty, don't you think? I think it would have been a very, yeah. I mean, I think even Los Angeles was a much smaller mm -hmm. place at that time. It would have been a much less uh, sophisticated, much less traveled, much more small town kind of environment. So this must have just been a devastating wave mm -hmm. of crime for such a small town. 
Well, well, and we're also, we're coming out of the hippie movement, right? Or the hippie movement still happening. So the idea of living out in the woods in this part of the country isn't that out of the ordinary. And the idea of a single woman living out there with her kids, I mean, like people lived on communes, people were building domes, you know, they were just doing stuff. They were dropping out, checking out, whatever. So they were finding it, out why the spot was so mysterious. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, so February, this is a few months after this murder, which goes unsolved for a period of time. The murder of, of Kathy uh, Francis and her two young boys, February 13th, 1973, a single rifle shot rings out and the mystery, as they say, begins to unravel. 73-year-old Fred Perez is gardening in his uh, front yard when a young man drives onto his quiet street, shoots him, and drives off. A neighbor spots the car, calls the police. The police immediately stop it. The occupant, the occupant excuse me, is 25-year-old Santa Cruz resident Herbert William Mullen, M-U-L-L-I-N. He, upon initial interviews and record checks, seems to be an upstanding member of the community. He's quiet and polite. He doesn't give the police any fight or trouble. And they soon realize they have caught their number one suspect in as many as 13 murders. Uh, they start to dig into his background. They find he was voted most likely to succeed in high school, that he went to college on a scholarship. Uh, it's then that we are introduced to a gentleman named Harold Cartwright, who is the defense, who was the defense investigator on Mullen's case. And he says he sets about trying to dig into uh, Mullen's past to find out what caused this guy to go from being an excellent, well-liked student to a vicious, cold-blooded killer. Uh, he uh, finds out that Mullen was born on April 18th. 1947 put a pin in that as we said at the top of the episode we're going to come back to that date and talk right. about its significance here uh we're then there they play tape recorded phone calls with edward mullen that were clearly made uh from prison um in which he is giving little bits and pieces that offer some sort of insight into himself although i would say mullen's yeah, ability insight, to give insight might into be him. a stretch yeah um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I'm not sure that, that Mr. Mullen is really um, available to provide actual insight of any kind into himself or anything else. He seems pretty, something was, something's up with Mr. Mullen. Something is very wrong. He says his earliest memory was of crawling on his hands and knees and looking into a puddle and seeing his own reflection and touching it so that he created circles rippling out in all directions. He tells That's the his investigator, earliest memory. Right, yeah, like and and seeing yeah, that redwoods. sounds like a childhood memory. Seeing redwoods too, so he was apparently crawling on the ground in the forest and uh, you know touched a puddle and had a religious experience. Yeah, that um, didn't happen. So, in interviews with the police after his arrest, he begins to reveal details of twelve murders in addition to the shooting he was just arrested for, the murder of Fred Perez. God. He says that he was hearing voices. And that these voices told him he was one of the chosen people and that he Here had to perform ritual sacrifices to prevent California from being cast into the sea by a giant earthquake. There it is. Yeah. So um, his reason for murdering 13 people, including those two little children, was to prevent 
earthquakes. Right. And yeah, and so we're going to get back to that date in the context of this, but we're going to keep teasing it for now because the special takes a little while before they reveal the full force of his paranoid delusions. Uh, we're introduced to Jim Jackson, who is the defense attorney, slightly bald, um, handlebar mustache, looks exactly like a white defense attorney you see from all of these specials. But um, he also looks a little like David Crosby. Yes. Yeah, that's, like, that's the particularly in the Particularly in the old photos of when he was actually the lawyer. It's like, his lawyer's David Crosby. Oh, my God. He's <laughs> not David Crosby. No, but um, he looks a lot like him. So Mullen is talking and talking and talking and talking to the cops. And what he says is that his victims offered themselves to him telepathically, that he would drive past them or walk past them. And a voice would say, this person is ready to die at your hands, essentially. Um, They start to realize that there may be another killing that has gone unsolved recently that he is responsible for, and Mullen begins to talk about it, and it's the murder of Lawrence White, who is referred to, and I think this is because this is a British special, this term is still in use, a local hobo. I'm not sure we use the term hobo anymore, or that we've used it after 1967. it's a time period thing. I mean, like, people were considered the hobo codes and the hobo, like, hobo jungles and all of those things. It was a, it was a cultural thing in the, in Mm. its own time that has kind of been supplanted by our um, itinerant and homeless population. So I'm not sure if they are equivalent. Okay, good. Like, I'm not sure if it's not a cultural thing that has simply, that's over, you know, that Mm -hmm. has, time has been and come, or maybe it's still happening, but it's been subsumed by the itinerant and homeless population. And so we don't really see it in the same way, but yeah, it was almost a romantic thing. Yeah. Right. That's how it's used. Like Glenn Campbell's big hit gentle on my mind is kind of a hobo song and lots of, um, lots of, there were, there were composers and artists and singers and musicians who, presented themselves as that. So I don't know where it lands in the term of slang anymore. I don't know if it's considered politically incorrect, but in this case, it was referring to a gentleman who, you know, lived rough as they do Mm -hmm. say, I think still in England. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, was actually kind of a good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. he, He was, he was a nice guy. And, and he didn't deserve to die the way that he does. Mullen describes the murder thusly. He's driving along a mountain road. He passes Lawrence White walking on the side. A voice in Mullen's head says to him, I'm Jonah, throw me over. So Mullen pulls over to the side of the road, pops the hood on his car as if he's having car trouble. Up walks Lawrence White to help him. And Mullen comes up behind the man and bludgeons him to death with a baseball bat. So this is the beginning of what people are going to point out, the sort of fatal flaw, if you will, in Mullen's delusions, which is if these people are ready to die, why, why do you have, he have to, to entrap go this and, elaborate yes. ruse to trap him and beat him to death with a baseball bat and then leave his body on the side of the road like garbage? Right. Like, Jesus what a yeah. monster. And yeah, that's pretty contrived for somebody who's doing the will of God and taking away people who are ready to be sacrificed. That mm-hmm. sounds like, uh, I think you can smell it from yeah. here. 
Uh, we are then introduced to Dr. Catherine Ramsland. If you don't know this, and I think she has showed up as a commentator on one of these specials we've talked about before on True Crime TV Club, she also wrote a biography of my mother, Anne Rice, called Prism of the Night, which was authorized and came out, I believe, in the mid to late 90s. Um, she, this is sort of what she does now. She's a forensic psychiatrist or a forensic analyst who shows up on a lot of these shows. Hi, so Catherine. So your mom a serial killer too? Not that I know of, but I wouldn't rule anything out these days. Stuff you gets know, discovered all the tell. time. Yeah. Um, Mullen goes on to describe a murder he committed on October 24th of the previous year. This is, um going to get gruesome. He offered a ride to a 24-year-old college student named Mary Gilfoyle. Um, in the course of talking about Mary's case, we're introduced to two additional commentators, one of which is Christopher Cottle, who was the prosecuting attorney, and another forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Helen Morrison. There are three forensic psychiatrists that are interviewed, and only one of them was actually involved with the case, but I think all three of them say very astute things. Mullen describes to investigators how he murdered Mary Guilfoyle. After offering her a ride, he drove her far from where he was supposed to take her. He stabbed her, cut her open, and disemboweled her. He pulled out all of her intestines and laid them out in the open. And what the investigators tell us, or what Terry Medina, the sheriff's detective, tells us, is that Mullen discussed these murders without any apparent emotion whatsoever. Now comes the most theatrical of his murders, November 1972. Because that wasn't theatrical enough. I know. Mullen enters St. Mary's Church in Los Gatos, California. That's uh, close to where these other murders have taken place. Uh, Father Henri Tomei is taking confession. He was a World War II French resistance fighter. He was well-loved in the community and considered a very kindly and good priest. He opens the door. Mullen opens the door to the confessional and stabs the priest in the heart. And he later claims that as Father Tomei was lying there dying, he told Mullen that he forgived him. Which, do we believe that story? Do we believe that that's true, or is that something Mullen made up to investigate? Well, the only person whose word we have to take for it is Mullen, so I think that is its own answer to that particular question. Yeah. But if it was true, it's the only time that any of the people seem to have offered themselves to him as a sacrifice. Right. At any Uh, level. Terry Medina, the sheriff's detective we were introduced to at the beginning, starts to tell us about Mullen's parents and his family in general, and he said there was absolutely no sign that they were responsible for turning this man into a killer. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So sheriff's detective or sheriff's investigator, Terry Medina, who was in charge, who was of the case, basically, 
uh, starts to take us on a tour of, of Mullen's family. And again, we go back in time to discover that this was a very well-liked and exceptional student. He was voted most likely to succeed. He came from a small town in the area called Felton, California. But after high school, he basically began to deteriorate mentally, in the words of many. Uh, he was dating a girl and engaged to be married to her in 1967. And that is when what he called his mental health issues started to take effect. He became both hyper-controlling and physically abusive. He started to show signs of severe paranoia. And this is where uh, one of the forensic psychiatrists, Helen Morrison, weighs in. And I'm not sure I've ever heard it put uh, this succinctly, but she says that the original thinking, and those are her words, the original thinking, which usually indicates outdated psychology, around paranoia was that it was the result of unacted upon homosexual urges and a terrible fear that those urges would be discovered. And she puts a weird point on it. She tries to say, it doesn't mean they were closeted homosexuals. It just means that they wanted to act in homosexual ways, <laughs> but were afraid of discovery. And I'm like, I kind of feel like that's the same thing. What did you think? Did you hit on this point? I thought it was maybe something that somebody should have mentioned to the lovely people who made the movie Beautiful Mind, which is mm -hmm. one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen, where, a, you know, a man was dealing with his own paranoid schizophrenia and mm -hmm. his latent homosexuality, which they just left out of the movie entirely mm -hmm. and yeah. said that um, what really cured him was the love of a good woman when, in fact, in real life, his wife and he had divorced, she had left him, and she in no way played any part in his recovery. So they just mm. made that up in the movie. So it seems more valid than their take on, mm -hmm. on paranoid schizophrenia. You could certainly see how if you were genuinely afraid of being discovered um, as a homosexual, it could be, it could produce paranoia, particularly if you were not the soundest of mind in the first place. But I would think there would be lots of things that could produce paranoia in you. Mm -hmm. um, like being a murderer, for instance. Yeah. I, you might be really worried that people were going to catch you. Yes, exactly. Um, Mullen's sister tells them about something that I think is far more distressing and far more clearly a result of profound mental illness. She says the first time she became really concerned for her brother's mental health, the family was all having dinner and Mullen started to mimic everything her husband did. And this was not like, I know you are, but what am I? It was like he was literally caught in a trance-like state where mirroring, if her husband picked yeah. up before, he was mirroring. Yes, exactly. It was beyond mimicry. Um, and this is apparently an acknowledged... The husband picked up a fork, he picked up a fork. The husband stood up, yes. he stood up. The husband went to the kitchen, he went to the kitchen. Literally everything that the husband did or said, he did or said. And this is called echopraxia. And it is apparently a symptom of schizophrenia. What a great name. Yeah, echopraxia. Not a drag queen. Or just a drag queen. It probably is a drag queen somewhere. It's probably. a symptom of schizophrenia. And if it's not, it will be after this broadcast. So, and this is when the family sort of, or they, the investigators who are telling us about all this start to um, allude to a narrative that the family became very attached to, which was that experimenting with drugs is what began all of these mental problems yeah. in Mullen's mind. It wasn't that his father was a former Marine. It wasn't that he was a tiny little guy who was shoved into playing football and playing baseball and being sports and being perfect 
that was what he was really invested in being was the perfect guy mm -hmm. um, in order to uh, live up to his father's expectations of who he was supposed to be. Had nothing to do with that. It was that he smoked some dope with a friend. And the friend was named Jim Genera. And Mullen began telling everybody at the time that Jim was really the one who turned him on to illegal drugs and really was causing all of these problems for him. But Mullen was also abandoning Catholicism, which he had been very devoted to. He'd been a practicing Catholic, attending church every Sunday. Uh, he starts exploring Eastern religions. He registers as a conscientious objector. This is in the time of the Vietnam War. All of these things were increasingly popular in California at the time, especially Eastern religions. Um, none of the psychiatrists, this is when I really start to love the commentators because all the psychiatrists are like, yeah, illegal drugs don't do this. Like drugs by themselves can't produce what happened in Herbert Mullen's brain. Like it's just, it, 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 there has to be a pre-existing psychosis there for them to One exacerbate. One of the things that they said that I found the most profoundly imp impressive was they also said that mental illness doesn't cause this kind of behavior. That was it. That was why I loved it. It was like somebody finally said that. They, they We'll just get to it right now. They sort of arrive at it at the end, but they say, Many, the schizophrenics that you meet who are in a mental institution are there because they have heard the voices and they don't want to listen to them. They're there because I hear these voices telling me to do this destructive, crazy crap. And I hurt myself, I will hurt other yeah. people, hurt ever. And it freaks them out and they actually go to seek help for it. And that's yes. how they wind up in mental institutions. They don't, schizophrenics very rarely act on the voices or any of the, the, the delusions that they are experiencing. Absolutely. And I think it's, it, it's why it behooves us to be specific and informed on the topic of mental illness in general, because it, it falls on both sides when people are really vague. Oh, the explanation is mental illness. It's like, what mental illness? What phase was it in? Was the person being treated? I mean, we hear that it becomes a very sort of binary tribalist argument around gun control. There's a mass shooting. Was it the availability of guns or was it the mental health system failing this individual? It's like, those are two, those answers individually are, are, are too, I think there are too many guns. I'm just going to say that. I think there are too many fucking guns. But saying somebody is clearly mentally ill and that's why they did it, it doesn't get into the specifics of that. And I think it is important to remind ourselves that the vast majority of mentally ill people do not obey command hallucinations, is what they're called, when they have them. They don't obey them. But for some reason, Mullen did. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever, or... There were no delusions, and he just said that to cover whatever yeah, the, true. you know, like, yeah. it, it's just like, it. everything else he did was very uh, contrived and calculated, and so his defense may have been, too. I have no way of knowing whether or not he was experiencing um, command delusions or not. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. it could just have been his cover story. Obviously, his defense pursued that um, right. as he went to trial with it. They were trying to get him... Uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, but, well. Yeah. Well, let me finish out the sort of timeline of his murders because it'll bring us back to where we started. But by January 1973, Mullen has killed three people. We're now at a phase in his killing spree where the delusion explanation starts to fall apart completely when you look at the fact because he adopts a revenge motive, which is he starts to track down his old high school friend, Jim Genera, who introduced him to drugs. And he finds his house in Santa Cruz and he shoots Jim. He stabs Jim's wife. 
And he then, it turns out, goes back to the woodland cabin of Kathy Francis, who we met in the opening, who was murdered with her two children, and he kills her because it turns out Kathy is the one who told him where Jim was living. So she had to be silenced, and apparently her two little boys did too. So Because they saw him kill their mother. Yeah. And then, again, the timeline, because the murders are being discovered out of sequence, right? So then Terry Medina is called to another time. The Kathy Francis homicide has gone unsolved, right? We've gone back in time prior to Mullen's arrest. And then uh, Terry Medina is called to another terrible crime scene out in Henry Cal State Park, which is in kind of the same section of woods. And in a makeshift shelter, there are 14 campers are found murdered. Each one of them has been shot in the head. And this was the detail. They really milked it for all it was worth, but it was worth milking. They found the bodies and made the death determination right before sunset, so they couldn't transport the bodies out of this remote area before night fell. So Terry and another sheriff's deputy so had to creepy. spend the night in the woods at the crime scene. And they did not have anyone in custody at the time. So they didn't no. know where the murderer was. And they were spending the night with it in the dark, in the woods, with a tent full of dead bodies. Like, yeah. I just think that's the creepiest rookie assignment I've ever heard of. I mean, beyond, beyond. Um, the autopsies revealed that the bodies had actually been there a week and then, oh, I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier. Mullen had Mullen is already arrested. And so then they discover this is most likely the work of Mullen. And so, thank God, he was in jail while they were right. spending that night. But they out didn't there with know the that at the time. Yeah, no, they didn't. Um, they also determined that it was a rifle found at this campsite that Mullen used to kill Fred Perez, which was the shooting that got him arrested, which we talked about at the beginning. Um, so, Harold Cartwright, that defense investigator we met at the beginning, who was digging into the into Mullen's past, he goes to San Francisco because he discovers that Mullen spent a stretch in the city living in the Tenderloin District. Now, they, they talk about the Tenderloin as if it used to be really bad. I think it's actually still kind of bad. I think it's still a pretty rough area. Maybe it's been gentrified to some extent. but Honestly, I think San Francisco has become too valuable of real estate for there to be any bad areas anymore. Yeah, I don't know. but I don't know. I haven't been to San Francisco and since this gigantic boom in real estate. It's a small town, and I never saw it as being that terrible, but... You know, it was, it had a reputation at the time. Yeah. A lot of reputations at the time the Tenderloin did. It was also Hustlerville. Yeah. It was, there was a lot you could get in the Tenderloin if you wanted to sort of step outside the line. So um, he lived there for a while. He was living in decrepit hotels. He got super into boxing and he was working at a boxing gym. The trainer said he liked him, even though he was really strange because he was the type of guy who would get right back up, even if you beat the crap out of him. But during the course of his investigation, Harold Cartwright finds the manager at one of the hotels where he lives. And she says, oh, yeah, he actually left some boxes behind. And in these boxes, they find journals of his that are just insanely overwritten. And they say that they are evidence of something called hypergraphia, which can be a symptom of many mental disorders, which set this particular list taker back a little bit because I have a tendency to take compulsive notes about Look, stuff. Do you, have but just a, do you have a light dusting of hypergraphia, Christopher? I think I do. I have a light du- I get really excited around notebooks and pens. I don't know. Maybe I just have a lot of stories to tell. Um, but anyway, so this is when they we finally get back to that date we asked you to put a pen in at the top of the pa- podcast, okay? Dun, so dun, Her- dun. Harold Cartwright dives into these crazy journals, and that's when he discovers 
the source of Mullen's grand delusion. Do you want to sort of take us through this, Eric Shaw Quinn? Because the date and the significance of it was part of why you picked oh, no. this Oh, show. no. You're on a roll, Christopher. Okay. Go for it. All right. So it turns out that Albert Einstein, the Albert Einstein, not the DJ in Iowa, um, he died on the same date that Mullen was born. This well, date that's meaningful. Also coincides with the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. So Mullen believes that Einstein died to protect the people who were born on April 18th. And those who were born on April 18th have a duty to protect everyone else. And the way that they do this is by murdering people to prevent the next natural disaster because he has apparently studied, I'm putting in giant air quotes, death rates and decides that natural disasters happen when the death rate goes down because it's a way of nature balancing itself out. So he chooses October 13th to begin his killing spree because then he will slay his final victim on the 13th of the month. Again, we're back to April 13th. So basically, Herbert Mullen believed that by killing the people that he did, he was going to prevent a cataclysmic earthquake. And he was going to do that by raising the local death rate, I guess. I guess this was a local issue, like it didn't go global for him. It's Yeah, everything, all politics and serial killing is local. Um, yeah, and he was doing it at the behest of Albert Einstein somehow. I um, think, yeah. At, or, I think the key word is, this is what he said. Yes. So he tries to mount an insanity defense, okay? Um. And he says to his court-appointed attorney, who we mentioned earlier, Jim Jim something, I can't remember his Dave name. Dave Crosby. Dave, Dave Crosby. Looks just like Dave Crosby. He says, you don't look enough like Richard Nixon. I don't want you to be my attorney. And Crosby looked re- like Dave Crosby, not but, Richard Nixon. <laughs> but he says, this wasn't when Nixon was popular, so I couldn't believe no. why he was saying this to me. <laughs> not in 1973. Not a hot time for... Um, 74, whatever. Not a hot time for uh, old Dick, Tricky Dick. Tricky Dick, no. Things were on the outs. Um, a Mullen would become excited during the trial when they described the victims' bodies in the crime scenes. He was also disruptive in various ways. And this is when all of the commentators in unison come down hard on that point that we made earlier, which is that a, di- a diagnosis of severe mental illness is not the same thing as being legally insane and we've talked about this i think on another episode we did crazy not insane we talked about that documentary that that the mcnaughton rule which apparently comes out of england says you have to not know that your actions were wrong you have to truly not know that's what the insanity defense is about um mullen testifies he delivers a paranoid lecture on how his family and friends all conspired to drive him to murder so that's one way of thanking them for trying to blame drugs on Which his behalf. Which he was also t- still talking about on the telephone calls. Yes. That nobody uh, is investigating his theory that he was driven to do these murders by his family and friends. And, and, what and the sheriff's investigator, Medina, basically says, yeah, we did. And there was absolutely nothing there. This was a perfectly lovely family. They had nothing to do with this guy doing any of this, you know. Um but the defense that they basically try to mount on his behalf amounts to if, if you believe that two plus two equals five and everything that you do derives from that belief, then it's wrong. 
but that does not satisfy the McNaughton rule. I mean, yeah. like he was he knew he was claiming lives. He knew that what he was doing was killing intentionally. People. Not only yeah, he did he know it, but he was doing it intentionally and he felt like it was for the greater good or he said he felt like it was for the greater good, but he still knew what he was doing. It wasn't yeah. some out of control act. So, yeah, it didn't really help his defense. And so so the jury judges him sane at the time of his crimes, and he is convicted of two first-degree murder charges and eight second-degree murder charges. And he is sent away to prison. And I did go online and do a little research because he was denied parole once in 2011. He came up again this year and was denied. He was denied parole oh, twice. That was it. That's interesting. And I'm going to say this. Mm-hmm. This was my takeaway from... Oh, yes. I love your takeaways. From uh, watching this particular uh, 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 true crime TV episode, um, I'm going to say, and I thought it was really interesting that they did, there are two things. One, okay, so we're saying that he has a revenge motive, Mm -hmm. and he killed the priest at his family church. I know. I thought the same thing. That was a very suspicious um, combination, and asked for forgiveness, or said he forgave him. Like all of those were mm-hmm. that that gave that one a suspicious cast. The other thing I'm going to say about this in general is traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. was a young man who was very physically small, and yet he was playing football in mm-hmm. high school to try and appeal to his macho Marine father. Yes, very um, strict father, right. And was also into the boxing. So I think it is very possible that his impulse control was in fact in some way impaired due mm-hmm. to traumatic brain injury so that his inability to not do um, the crazy things that he was thinking of to do, whether he was instructed by voices or he just decided, right. reasoned it out in his hypergraphia, um, what, whatever the, the motivation was, he was unable to make that decision that even schizophrenics apparently make of, oh, these voices are telling me to do bad things and I don't want to. I better go seek help. Right. So I think, I think that I'm far more... Uh, impressed with that particular theory of this crime Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. I am with the notion of, I think there's some sort of, because everybody said he was this great guy and then suddenly he wasn't anymore. And that to me sounds like some physical damage to his brain, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. somehow liberated him from his reason or his impulse control or whatever. um, And put him on this collision course with, this horrific crime spree, but and, but I, that takes I don't know us what, most likely to succeed, and then this, yeah, and and that takes us back to we didn't do a whole episode on it, but it was a documentary called Crazy Not Insane. It's available on HBO Max. We talked about yes. it in part. I can't remember what episode it is, but it's in the synopses for the episodes. And and she was a sort of the psychiatrist featured there was a champion of this idea that that there was there could be an underlying psychosis, but that there was often some sort of early life traumatic brain injury that compounded it's not one thing is the theory it's not later life what you would call it i mean we look at the football players who have become involved in horrific crimes oj simpson or who was the gay one who killed his sister aaron hernandez yeah aaron hernandez or there's a whole host of like football players who become 
wildly abusive or violent towards people in their lives that they have no reason to be um, Mm -hmm. other than they have somehow become dissociated with their own um, inhibitions in and around doing those really sort of violent crimes. And also suicide becomes a factor. They say with some NFL player, there was a recent case, I think of a former San Diego NFL player. They say, his fam said his suicide was most likely caused by a traumatic brain injury or by the symptoms of one and the pain and anguish caused by one. Anyway, um, yeah. I knew that was just my sort of takeaway on it. He doesn't need to be let out of prison. He needs no. to be in, in some sort of. So I'm glad that the parole system here is, is continuing to work as well as it does. Because, yeah, he there is no reason to believe that this guy wouldn't kill again because he has no a regret about doing it or inhibition about having done it. I went camping in these woods. I realized that after I watched the special as a child, we went on school camping trips in this area of this woods, the Santa Cruz mountains, the big basin areas where we were. And I think that's mostly where we were in the special. Anyway, I just wanted to make it about me again before we wrapped up. Oh, thank but, heavens. Cause but it I, kind of drifted away from being about, it you really know, had it become about larger topics. I, I want to thank you for finding this case. I couldn't believe I didn't know anything about it because California serial killers are something I usually get obsessed with. And I knew nothing about this case at all. And, and it really was the fluke of having looked up the, uh, the earthquake date. And then I thought earth, I, I think the Google was earthquake-related murders, which I thought yeah. maybe somebody used it as a cover to commit murder or something. Mm. And this came up, and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. We have to cover this. Absolutely. And we did. We covered it. So, yay And us. it's on YouTube, so everybody can YouTube. watch it if you're interested. And I'd say it's worth it. It was pretty good. I would yeah. watch more from this series. I thought they I did a sub- nice, well-researched well job of... Putting yeah. together on uh, making a really interesting uh, story out of this. Absolutely. And the production quality was more than I expect from just YouTube stuff. Yeah. Um, I subscribe to the channel. Not everything on the channel is 45 minutes, too. There's stuff that's six minutes, four minutes, shorter sort of pieces oh, that are available okay. as well. So we can look at that. On our next episode, our exploration of the unsolved Billy Newton murder has put us in touch with an exciting new documentarian who's taking oh. her own look into the case. And she's incorporating information we uncovered here at TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. We will be talking with Rachel Mason, the director of the Netflix documentary Circus of Books. This is only our second interview on TDPS Presents Christopher and, and Eric. And again, it's about Billy. It's right. about Billy Newton that has inspired it. But yeah, she is really she is really um, finding her own interest in this particular case. And she shares some really remarkable insights with us. Absolutely. And if you want to review our coverage of the Billy Newton murder, check out episodes 37, 48, 60, and 63. Those are all in our podcast library. And then 74? <laughs> and 74 will be the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then 74. We're just building up parts. We call it the murder of, of William Martin, Arnold Newton, excuse me, parts one through three. And then next week will be part four. So we labeled them clearly so you can find them in our library. I love talking about clerical stuff. It's my hypergraphia. Right, because your hypergraphia <laughs> is really irrepressible. Exactly. I'll get you a pen and a notebook to absolutely. Uh, doodle about it. Absolutely, 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 absolutely. Be sure to drink. Uh, until then, if you ever sober up, I'm Christopher Rice. And even if you don't, I'm Eric Shawquin. <laughs> and you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. Thank you.
This is TDPS.